Amen. Whatever comes, we shall endure, because our hope is in Christ Jesus. And so let's turn to His Word now, if you would. Turn to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, That's where we'll be this Lord's Day. If you were with us uh, a couple weeks ago, we started in Genesis 37, and then uh, last week, uh, Pastor Nick uh, preached from Philippians and did an excellent job uh, helping us to understand that text. And and today we're going to return to Genesis 37. Uh, we find ourselves in the story of Joseph. We began uh, two weeks ago looking at his life and, and considering even what we knew about Joseph leading up to Genesis 37. And, and what we saw there is a, a young man who's faithful to walk with his God in the midst of a family that many times, many people in that family were not so faithful. And so we're going to continue to look to that today and as we do to see suffering uh, to see what happens when, uh, when other people's sin affects us, and to see how in the midst of that we still see the gospel uh, go forward and shine brightly. So uh, if you are able to stand, if you will, out of reverence for the Word as I read this text for us, Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36. Remember, this is God's very Word to us today, and this is what it says. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, uh, where, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites going from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes 
and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. If you would, church, pray with me. Father, this is your word. We pray you would use it to change our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In our lives, we ask questions about God. And questions like, how, how, how can a good God, a holy God, allow suffering Uh, questions like how how can we reconcile God being in control and yet evil people having their plans accomplished these are questions that we can answer in a couple of ways as I've mentioned we we can we can try to reason through them we can try to come up with answers of our own or we can go to God's word and we can go to texts like Genesis 37 and in Genesis 37 we can find Texts that deal with those very questions. That teach us about people like Joseph. Joseph, who as I already mentioned, we began talking about a couple weeks ago. Uh, Joseph as a young man who is faithful. Uh, Joseph as a young man who, while being the next to youngest in his family, is so faithful, in fact, that, that his father entrusts many things to him. There's two things that really stand out from the first 11 verses that we covered in Genesis 37. One is that very thing, that that Joseph's father Jacob trusted in Joseph. He he, he chose Joseph as sort of a leader of that family. He he gave him that robe of many colors. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, how in the the Hebrew text that's a, a confusing term and it could indeed mean not so much a robe of many colors, but a robe with long sleeves and how that is an indication in Joseph's day of the one who was in charge, the the one who had stewardship over things. And that fits very nicely into the context of Joseph's story because he was the one who was trusted by his father. We saw how already in Genesis 37 he went out to check on his brothers and check on the flock and had to come back and give his father a bad report. We saw from other texts in Genesis how Joseph's brothers were very unfaithful young men. Even his sister unfaithful. How she wanted to be like the women of the land and ended up putting herself in a situation there in Shechem where she's then violated. How the older brother Reuben had committed an immoral act and shamed his father. How his other brothers Levi and Simeon had gone in and in vengeance and enraged had murdered many men in Shechem. And then in contrast to them, how we have this one young man, Joseph. It becomes clear that he's the one who's trusted. What also becomes clear is that 
his brothers hate him. They have a rage in their hearts against him. You think about the context and it becomes clear why they hate him so. He, he shares about these dreams that God's given him and, and essentially says to him that, that God is affirming what the father Jacob has already said to him that, that, that he's going to be the one who's in charge. Now, the brothers don't like this very much. You consider that context, how in their day and age, how the oldest would receive the inheritance, and yet now we have the next to youngest who's stepping up to lead the family, and that would have serious implications on them. And so they grow in their hatred towards Joseph, and as you see in the text today, they are intent on killing him. Now, you may hear that and think, well, that, that just seems like a bit much, <laughs> The, the father favors him and gives him this robe, and all of a sudden the brothers want to kill him? That, that, that just seems like a lot. And yet you consider how that fits into the context of Scripture. How you go back to creation, and soon after that, as sin enters the picture, you, you have these two brothers, and one kills the other. One hates the other. Why? Because God favors the sacrifice of one over the other. You think about Joseph's own family, his father Jacob and Jacob's brother Esau, and how Esau was intent on killing Jacob over what? Over an inheritance. You think about the context of our own day. Some of the greatest hatred we see at times is between family members, between siblings. And even in our context today, we have situations where one will breathe murderous threats against another, don't we? I read a story just this last year, a news story out of New Orleans about a man who was accused in standing trial for murder. He had killed four of his family members. And when they investigated what had led to this killing rampage in his family, what they found was that he was upset over an inheritance. The inheritance was his grandmother's house, which in and of itself was kind of a, a beat-up old shack that was falling apart. But this man was so enraged because he thought he deserved it, and these other family members got it, that not only did he threaten murder, he killed four of them, or stood accused of that. We see the biblical story play itself out in our culture today. We see how wickedness can affect man's heart we see how suffering can come to those who are faithful. And as we see it here, we see there's great application for our lives. There's much for us to learn from this text today. Beginning with the first point that I've put there in your notes. We learn from this text that faithful people may suffer and unfaithful people may prosper. You see, there are those at times who want to tell us that no, no, it doesn't work that way. If, if you're just faithful enough, everything will work out for you. And if you're not faithful, well, then things don't work out for you. Sadly, that's not consistent with what the Scripture teaches us. What the Scripture teaches us is no, indeed, there are times when people are faithful and they walk with the Lord and they obey the Lord and yet they suffer greatly. And at the same time, they look around and see people who are unfaithful, who aren't walking with the Lord, and yet everything seems to go right for them. We certainly have that example here in Joseph's life. Joseph, we've already seen, is one who is faithful to his father. And here in this text then, it's not surprising to us that when his father 
comes to him and says, Joseph, I want you to go and check on your brothers. What does he say? Here I am. It's an indication he, he is there to faithfully serve his father. And his father then wants him to go and check on his brothers. We know that Joseph's already been in a situation like this. Where at least once, probably many times before, he's gone out to check on his brothers, bring a report back. But there's probably more going on this time. See, perhaps Jacob is just concerned about Joseph's brothers, concerned that they're not quite trustworthy, concerned about what they're actually doing and if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and watching after his flock. Or perhaps his concern goes deeper than that. Because the Scripture tells us that the brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. If you remember that place, Shechem, you remember where we've seen it before. Shechem is the place, just a few chapters ago, where we read about Jacob's daughter, Dinah, kind of sneaking out. She was was drawn towards the women of that land. She wanted to be like the women of that land. And it's there that she's violated greatly in that land. And it's there that her brothers Levi and Simeon decide they're going to take matters into their own hands. Nobody's going to treat their family member like this and get away with it. So what do they do? They go in and they come up with a plan that will result in them slaughtering the men of that city. Shechem was some distance away from the area that Jacob now found himself in, a number of days' journey away. And so now, his boys have gone up there with the flock. He is likely going to be thinking, wait a second, that's probably not the safest place for them to be right now. But the Scripture tells us when that event took place that, that the very name of Jacob and Jacob's family, it was just a stench to the people of the land. I don't know that the people feared them as much as they just probably hated them. And so now Jacob's boys are there, and so he's going to send Joseph to go up there and check on them. And so Joseph goes there, he goes to Shechem, but sure enough, the brothers aren't there. And so he looks for them, and then this man comes to him and says, well, I, I think they've gone to Dothan. Dothan would have been another 12, 14, 15 miles north of Shechem, so now he's going to journey farther away. And as he gets closer to them, verse 18 says, They saw him from afar, and before they came near to them, they conspired. And they decided in their hearts they were were going to kill their brother. The chances are they probably have been thinking about this. They've been thinking about this from the time that Joseph brought back a bad report. They've been thinking about this from the time that their father affirmed Joseph, while being one of the youngest, would be the leader among the brothers. They've been thinking about this when Joseph came and shared with them about these dreams he had. Dreams in which they were going to be bowing down to him. Their hatred had grown. There's more at stake here than a beat up old house. What's at stake in this inheritance? The promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. The nations that would come from this family. These brothers know that. So their hatred is now turned to murderous thoughts against Joseph. Well, Reuben hears them come up with this plan of how they're going to kill Joseph and how they're going to take his robe and make it look like he was attacked by a wild beast. And and Reuben sees here, I believe, an opportunity. See, Reuben, if you remember from our study in Genesis, had done a very wicked, wicked, immoral thing with one of Jacob's wives, with one of his stepmothers. And as a result, Jacob knew about it. And 
And I think probably Reuben was aware that Jacob knew about it. And so Reuben, while being the oldest here, has already probably lost everything in his father's eyes. So Reuben, I believe, looks at this situation, he sees an opportunity here. He sees how he can, he, he can clean things up a bit. He sees how he can maybe get a little honor, a little respect back, because he decides, okay, I'm going to let them throw him in a pit, and then when they're not around, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get Joseph, and I'm going to bring him back to my dad, and I'm going to save the day. But unfortunately, it doesn't work out that way for Joseph or for Reuben. Because for whatever reason, Reuben's not around when they throw Joseph in the pit and they're sitting down to eat. Reuben's not around when these Ishmaelite traders come along and when his brothers then sell Joseph into slavery. So Reuben comes back and this plan's already gone forth. I want you to notice, friends, what you see taking place here. We, We have a picture of a faithful Joseph. Faithfully serving his father's wishes. Joseph would have been aware of what happened in Shechem as well. Joseph would have had every reason to say to his father, Dad, I I don't know if I want to go by myself out there looking for them. If you're worried about all of them, what about me? (laughs) Maybe you ought to send somebody else. Maybe you ought to send people with me. But no, Joseph hears his father's wishes and he faithfully does what he asked him to do. And even when Joseph gets to Shechem and finds that his brothers aren't there, he doesn't run home to his dad and say, well, they're not where they said they would be. I went looking for them and guess what? There they go again. No, he he faithfully pursues them because that's the task that he was given that he might bring back a report. We see a faithful Joseph, and yet in his faithfulness, we see him what? We see him suffer, don't we? So often in Scripture, we see people suffer at times when they've sinned. God, God allows them to suffer because of their sin. There's consequence for actions. But here, J- Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. Joseph's merely being faithful, and in response to his faithfulness, he's receiving suffering. And not only that, but the people around him who are unfaithful, they're not suffering, they're prospering. And notice here that as they continue to develop this plan, one of the brothers comes up with a better plan where he basically says, well, well, we should get something out of this, shouldn't we? (laughs) It's not enough just to get rid of our pesky little brother. We should profit. And so they make an arrangement where they're going to get paid For their betrayal, they're going to get paid for their sin. Look at the picture we have here. A a faithful one suffers. And the unfaithful brothers prosper. And friends, that's real life. There are times when we see faithful people suffer and unfaithful people prosper, don't we? There are times when it seems, in fact, like those who faithfully follow the Lord, suffer in abundance. And then they look around and they see people who aren't faithful to the Lord at all, perhaps who are just living openly in wickedness and sin, and their life seems to what? It seems like everything works out. And that troubles us, doesn't it? Because we want to think it's simpler than that. 
We want to think that life is some type of equation where if I do good things, good things happen to me. Where if I'm just faithful and I do what the Lord's called me to do, well, it's all going to work out, isn't it? And then we come to this text. And then we come to life. And we come to times when we have faithfully followed the Lord and we have faithfully sought to obey His Word and the bottom falls out from under us. And then in the pit, we look around and we look at suffering in our life, we look at suffering in the life of those we love, and then we look at people who don't seem to have any interest in the things of God. And it seems like everything's just going right for them. What do we do with that? See, for some of us, what we do with that is we just toss the whole thing and say, that's it, Lord, that's enough. But I think God, in those moments, He calls us to something deeper. He, He calls us to His Word. He shows us things like what we see here with Joseph, that no, 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 there is no equation. There's no simple math on this one. Life gets really hard sometimes, and people suffer greatly sometimes, and the ones who seem to love the Lord the most seem to suffer the greatest at times. And all the while, unfaithful people prosper. And that's reality. And it's not just that. As we continue in this story, we also see another truth. Point two. There are times when guilty people may go unpunished. And the truth may not be known. It gets worse for Joseph. It gets worse than the pits. If we're in that moment with Joseph, we're probably praying something like, Lord, get me out of the pit. Well, the Lord gets him out of the pit, doesn't he? Right into slavery. It just seems like it gets worse. And it seems like the wicked experience no consequence. Because they come up with this plan, they sell Joseph into slavery, Reuben comes back to the pit, he sees that Joseph's gone, and all of a sudden Reuben thinks, what am I going to do now? Here's my plan to gain a little respect with my father. And now Joseph's gone. My plan's gone. What what am I to do? So he goes to his brothers and together they come up with this plan of how they're going to do what they thought about before. They're going to take the robe. They're going to dip it in blood. They're going to take it to their father. Think for a moment of them what Jacob's going to do. Here are his hateful sons with murder on their heart who have profited from the suffering of their brother and they bring this bloody robe to them and what does this do to Jacob? Not only does Jacob mourn the loss of his son, Jacob feels responsible for it. Because Jacob's the one who sent him out there. Jacob's the one who said, I want you to go and check on your brothers. And now they're bringing this torn up bloody robe back and Jacob is sitting there likely thinking, oh, what have I done? Why why, why didn't I send servants with him? Why, Why did I send Joseph who I love? Why, Lord, why? If this was a prime time movie, this would be about the time when the story would fall apart, wouldn't it? This would be the time when the brothers' stories didn't add up and all of a sudden Jacob realizes Joseph's not dead. 
If this was a primetime movie, this would be the time when Joseph, through some type of a feat of strength would defeat his captors and would come back home and as his father's holding that bloody robe in his hands, he would burst through the door and his dad would say, oh, my son's alive. And then the credits would roll. This isn't a movie. This is real life. And while Joseph indeed is not dead, Jacob doesn't know that. And Jacob will spend the remainder, most of the remainder of his life not knowing that. It will be over 20 years until he'll be reunited with that son and find out that he's not really dead. For 20 years, he will live on his conscience with the thought that he sent his son into harm's way and that his son was killed. For 20 years, the guilty would go unpunished and the truth would not be known. There are times in our lives where that very thing happens as well. So you see, we want to think, well, no, the truth will come out one day, and you know what? Sometimes it doesn't. We want to think that when people do wicked, evil, sinful things, that they will experience a consequence of that, and there are times this side of eternity where they don't. There are times when wicked, awful things happen, and we don't get the answers that we want. And there are times when we go through much more than 20 years of this. So what do we do with that? (laughs) Well, I think what we do with that, I think where we go with that, I think where our hope is found in that is found in a little, little message here in this last verse in this chapter. And I think what it indicates, what it points us towards is this, point three. The unfaithful and the guilty cannot thwart the will of God who is sovereign over all things. God is still in control when Joseph's in the pit. God is still in control when Jacob's holding the bloody robe. God is still in control when the truth's not known. God is still in control when the faithful are suffering. Verse 36 Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Why why does that verse give us hope? Because if you've read the rest of the story and you know the rest of the story, you know what that means. It means that God is going to take Joseph through even more suffering and imprisonment and he's going to feel the consequence of other people's sins to get him to a place in Egypt where he is in charge and to a place in in Egypt and in Israel's history where he alone is used by God to save the entire nation of Israel from being wiped off the face of the earth by a famine. And he's going to stand before his brothers one day. And he's going to have the opportunity... To just let them have it. But in that moment, older and wiser, he's going to see that God's sovereign hand has been on this. And he's going to say this to him. Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. See, Joseph knows it was just evil and wickedness and sin. 
But God, Joseph said, meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, Joseph's able to look back and go, you were wicked and you were evil and I suffered and people didn't know the truth and it was wicked and guess what? God was in control of all that. And to God be the glory for all of that. And that's why if you read Psalm 105, I started our service reading the first three verses of that about praising the Lord. Do you know what's in Psalm 105? The Lord brought famine. Praise the Lord. The Lord sent Joseph into slavery. Praise the Lord. The Lord sent him there that he might use him to preserve and save an entire people. Praise the Lord. The psalmist over and over again says, here's these terrible things that happen. Praise God. God's hand was on it. Praise God. God's always in control. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. You see, Joseph's story is one that not only teaches us about God being in control in Joseph's life, Joseph's story is one that teaches us about a much bigger story. See, Joseph's story points us towards another. Joseph goes, sent by the father, to seek out his unfaithful brothers. Is a picture of one who would later be sent by his father to come out and seek the unfaithful. And Joseph, when he goes to where they're supposed to be and they're not there, he doesn't stop until he finds them. Is a picture of another who seeks and saves those who are unfaithful. Joseph, when he gets to his brothers, is betrayed and is sold for a handful of silver coins as a picture of one who would come and be betrayed and sold out for a handful of silver coins. Joseph is one that God would put in a place of authority that he might save a nation as a picture of one that God would send Jesus Christ, His Son, who would stand in the place of every sinner alive today who's ever lived, who ever will live, in order that He might save all of mankind to Himself. And that's the big picture, friend. And that's why when we suffer, and when we see the unfaithful, and they seem to be just, just prospering, that's why we can step back and say, Praise the Lord. Because that's the big picture. Because He says, guess what? You're in My hand and you're in the Father's hand and no one can snatch you out of My hand. Neither death, nor sickness, nor calamity, nor suffering, nor pit, nor imprisonment, nor anything. Absolutely nothing. And sometimes we don't know that and experience that and it's not real to us until we're in the pit. Because let's be honest, when things are going well, we just don't really think about it much, do we? (laughs) We just kind of enjoy the ride. But when the bottom falls out, friend, that's when you start thinking, do I really believe this? Do, Do I really hold on to this? Is this really where my hope is found? One of the darkest days in our world came during World War II and and the reign of Nazi Germany and the annihilation of so many Jews. It it, it is a, a wicked, evil spot in the history 
of this earth. During that time, there was one young lady named Corey Timboom. She lived in the Netherlands, and she was a follower of Christ, along with her father and her sister. At that point in time, her mother had already passed. 1940, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands, and at that time, they began to ship off and annihilate the Jews that were in the Netherlands. Corey Timboom wasn't Jewish. She was safe in a way, but... Her and her family felt it was their role as believers to take care of those who were being sought after. And so they put themselves in harm's way. They established a a secret room in their house where, where, where the Jewish people could come and could come hide from the Nazis. And many who did were, were saved. Their lives were saved. They were sentenced to death in concentration camps. But because of Corey Timboom and her family, they, they lived. But things didn't go as well for her because eventually her and her family were found out. And so Corey Timboom and her sister and her father were shipped off to one of these concentration camps that they had saved so many from. In less than two weeks, her sister died there. Excuse me, her brother, her father died. Time went on, her sister died. And there she was, left with absolutely nothing but her faith in Christ. And she endured. And she lasted. And actually through what people called a clerical error, but what would later be seen as the providence of God, she was eventually released from that concentration camp and went on to live to be over 100 years old. She passed away just in 1983. And in that pit, this is what she wrote. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Have you learned that? In the pit, in the suffering. That's where we find out. If we are holding on to Him or we are holding on to something else. And friend, if you're holding on to something else, it will not last. And so today, cling to Christ. And tomorrow, Cling to Christ. And if things are well for you today, praise God, cling to Christ. And if life's falling apart today, praise God, cling to Him. Because He is all we truly have and He is all we truly need. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and for the testimony of those like Joseph who suffered much and endured much and in the end could look back and say, God is sovereign over all. We thank you for those who have gone before us like Corey Tim Boom who suffered much and lost much and in the end could say, God, you're sovereign over all. And Father, I pray that would be the testimony of this people. I pray that would be our testimony, Lord, for those who things are going well, praise you for that. And Lord, for those who have suffered that are barely holding on, Lord, we praise you for that as well. And we pray, God, that we would not put our hope in this world, but that our hope would rest in nothing other than Christ. And Lord, if there's any here who's holding on to something else, who's yet to repent and turn from their sin and embrace the Gospel and and just turn from sin and turn to Christ, Lord, pray that they would. And I pray they'd confess and I pray they'd repent and I pray they'd walk with You. Because, Lord, you're, You're all we truly need. 
Lord, help that truth to be so evident in our lives and help that to be a truth that we share with others. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, if you would stand together as we offer a time of response. This is an opportunity for you to respond in any way to God's Word. If He's leading you to come and join our church to confess Christ, be baptized, we welcome that. But this isn't simply for that. This is for everyone. To consider His Word and consider, are are you clinging to Christ today? Are you holding on to something else? And this is a time to let go of that other stuff and to cling to Jesus. And we invite you to do that during this time of response.